Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Great to see you all. Great to be with you. Hope you're doing well today. I am... Um, so pleased to be here with you all. And it's amazing that I'm next to a cactus here in Arizona and our scholar is in Yerushalayim and Alex is in Pittsburgh and Aglaia is in Louisiana and Lauren is in Canada. And we have learners across the world uniting for um, Torah learning today. Really exciting. And thank you, Rodef Shalom, for your partnership today. Um, we uh, appreciate all our friends in Denver and at that congregation. And I'm here to introduce Dr. Devor Steinmetz, who serves on the faculty of the Hebrew College Rabbinical School and the Mendel Leadership Institute. She is the founder of Beit Rabban, a Jewish day school profiled in Daniel Pekarsky's Vision at Work, the Theory and Practice of Beit Rabban. She's the author of scholarly articles on Talmud, Midrash, and Bible, as well as two books, From Father to Son, Kinship, Conflict, and Continuity in Genesis, and Punishment and Freedom, the Rabbinic Construction of Criminal Law. She has served on the faculty of Drisha, the Jewish Theological Seminary, Yeshiva Tadar, and Chavruta Abate Midrash at Hebrew University. I have had the chance to be at um, Dr. Simon's uh, Shabbos table and to learn from her, and it's always a delight. So thank you so much, Dr. Dvor Simon, for being with us today. Thank you so much. Um, Alex, did you want to put the handout in the chat? Great, thank you. Um, so it's a pleasure to be with you all. Um, I, I guess it's probably morning for most or all of you. It's uh, deep into the evening here uh, in Jerusalem. So I'm, I'm enjoying seeing Rabbi Shmuley's blue sky. <laughs> and um, that's a good, uh, a good starting point because we're going to be talking about uh, the relationship between darkness and light as we are moving toward the Hanukkah holiday. Um, so um, in a minute, I'm going to share my screen so we can be looking at the handout together. If you have capacity to open it on a separate device, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, once I share my screen, I will not see all of you, but I want to invite people to speak up at any time. Um, you're welcome to raise your hand, but again, I'll only see some of you once I share my screen. So if you have a question or a thought, just shout out, um, just unmute yourself and, and shout, don't wait for me to notice you because I might not notice you. And I really uh, want this to be as interactive as possible. So don't think of this as a lecture, think of this as uh, learning together with me, bringing texts and ideas and you participating in that. Deal? Thumbs up? Cool, great. So, um, before I share my screen, let me let me just say kind of what the what the plan is for our session. Um, we're going to, be, and also if I say anything that you just don't know what I mean, or I make a reference you don't understand, and I forget to translate or clarify, just shout out. Like don't don't wait to be confused. Just shout out. Please don't use the chat. Uh, just unmute and shout. Okay. So uh, we're going to be looking at um, three small texts. Um, two of them. Um, having to do with a story about Adam Harishon, the first human being, um, and his experience of the first winter. Um, and after we look at those texts, we're going to be uh, comparing them with a text about Hanukkah, and that's going to be kind of the trajectory of our session. Um, to introduce the text, and now I'm going to share my screen. minimize you all a little bit in order to see what I've shared. Okay, can you all see my screen there? Yeah, cool. Okay, so if you look at the top of the page, um, you have um, just a, a short line from the Mishnah, right, which is the, the oldest part of the Talmudic text on which the Talmud's discussion uh, is, is structured. Um, and this is a Mishnah from the Tractate of Odazara, the Tractate about how we uh, relate to idolaters and how we relate to idolatrous holidays and things like that. Um, and it introduces, this Mishnah lists the holidays of the idol worshippers. Um, and the first two holidays it mentions are Kalanda and Saturnura, which in a uh, more uh, English or Latinized uh, form would be Kalins and Saturnalia. And both the Talmud of the Land of Israel, the Talmud Yerushalmi, and the Babylonian Talmud um, uh, 
tell a story about how these holidays came to be, and they both tell a story about the first human being. We're going to start with um, the kind of shorter and simpler version in the Talmud of the Land of Israel, discuss that a bit, and then move on to the version in the Babylonian Talmud. So here you have um, the Yerushalmi, the Talmud of the Land of Israel, and Rav, who's a Talmudic sage, says, Rav Amar, I'll read in the original and then sort of translate it, but you'll always have the translation uh, open as well. Rav Amar, Kalins, Adam Harishon Hitkino. Rav, the sage, said that Kalins was established by the first human being, Adam Harishon. How did that happen? Kevan Arich, Amar, Oili, or Eli, Shema Shakatuvbo, Huishufharosh, Vatate Shufenu Akev, Shema Yavolinashini, Vaomar, Ach Hoshech Yishufeni. So when the first human being saw that the night was lengthening, right? I think this time of year, uh, he said, woe to me, lest the one about whom it is written, he shall wound your he head and you shall wound his heel, will come to bite me. I'll translate the last two lines in a minute, but let's just think about um, this part for a minute. What is he, who's he talking about when he says, the one about whom it is written, he shall wound your head and you shall wound his heel. Was that a reference to? The snake, the snake. That's, that's right. Uh, it's the snake, you see Genesis uh, three, right? Um, he is thinking back to the story of the Garden of Eden, where he was enjoined by God, commanded by God not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And of course, he, Eve, and then he eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Um, and then God pronounces punishments on Adam and on Eve and on the snake. Um, and about the snake, he says, he shall wound your head, meaning the human being shall wound your head, and you, the snake, shall wound his heel. So what he uh, is expressing worry about in this Talmudic story is he saying, lest the one, right, maybe now that it's dark, right, the one about whom it is written, meaning the snake, will come to bite me. And then um, the story quotes uh, a verse from Psalm 139, which we'll look at in a minute. Um, and the verse says, Ach choshech yeshufeni, right? Darkness will me or cover me or envelop me. And the word yeshufeni, right, what darkness is doing, is the same verb that's used um, for the snake wounding the person. Right? Um, and so the story here is making sort of making some sort of a linkage between the snake uh, and the darkness. Now, what the verse in the psalm means in the original, I'm going to actually scroll down to the verses on the second page of the handout. Um, this is Psalm 139. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm struggling to sort of see you and see the psalm here, but okay, so it's the psalm, Psalm 139. And you can see the verse here. Look only at the Hebrew for a minute, whether or not you understand the Hebrew. I just don't want you seeing the English translation just yet. Uh, the verse says, and I said, right, surely darkness will wound me or will cover me. Now in the verse, the subject of the verb is darkness, right? Darkness will envelop me or cover me or wound me. But the way the story is taking it is different. Um, and that's what you have in parentheses here. And I said, surely in darkness, he shall wound me. In other words, in the Hebrew, Yishufeni, he will wound me or he will envelop me, right? It doesn't say what the subject is. So the simple reading of the psalm is that it's darkness that will do that. But the way this text is reading it actually is, is that this in darkness, right, in the condition of darkness, he, right, the one about whom it says in Genesis will wound me, he will come and wound me. So what's what's going on here? What is um what is Adam worried about? What's he afraid of in this story? The snake might be hiding in the darkness. Snake might be hiding in the darkness, right? So, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I've moved you, in, in an attempt to see all of you, I moved you all to the side and now can see none of you. The snake might be hiding in the darkness. And why is he worried about the snake? Last time the snake actually tricked, the, you know, someone into eating fruit that was bad. And that led to a lot of bad things happening. 
Right. So he's so he's worried, right, because he has sinned, right? The condition of being vulnerable to the snake, the snake tripped him up to start with. And now, right, they've been told that the snake will continue to try to harm him. And so in the dark, right, in the dark, he's afraid of the dark and he's afraid of the snake in the dark. Right. Um, and what's interesting about this, um, if you look at, sorry, again, I'm, maybe I will just, Alex, are you able, you're not able to control this. Um, sorry, I'm just, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, if I stop sharing, can you share it, Alex, so that I can actually just see the people? Yes, I can do that. Awesome. That would be great. Okay. So Alex is going to share her screen and Alex will just move around based on what I'm pointing to. Okay. And that way I can actually minimize the screen share and see you all, which will be much better. I'll be able to actually concentrate on, on you and on what I'm saying. Um, right. So, so this is really a story. It's a story about the first winter, but it's also a story about fear. Um, and the fear has to do with specifically the snake. But I think the snake is also standing in for this general feeling of vulnerability. And particularly, right, he's, um, um, he has um, sinned, right? And he's concerned that in that condition of sin and in the darkness that is now coming into the world, right, the snake will come and get him. And I think, is anybody here, I can't see you all, but even if you're camera's not on, which I, if, if you're comfortable putting your camera, I'd appreciate it. But even if your camera's not on, you can use the um, reactions to, to react to this. Uh, raise your hand um, if you are or have ever been afraid of the dark. Okay, anybody else? Just three? A little bit? Okay. <laughs> great. Uh, you too, Alana. Great. Eva, great. Thank you. Um, I, I um, am very afraid of the dark. I'm getting better <laughs> now that I'm spending more time in darker places, but quite afraid of the dark. And, and when we're afraid of the dark, right, it's not, it's, it's, it's a, it could be a snake. It could be the ghosts in the closet. It could be the monsters under the bed, right? It's just this feeling of vulnerability um, because the darkness is when we can't see and when we're not fully in control and we don't know what's coming. And so I think here, you know, the snake is the snake, right? That snake in the story of the Garden of Eden. And it's also just this feeling of vulnerability that many of us experience either in the darkness or, of course, in other situations where we understand, right, that we are very kind of vulnerable uh, human beings. And he's afraid of that. And as it gets darker and darker and darker, and of course, it might continue to get dark, right? He doesn't know. This is his first time around and there's nobody he can talk to, right? There's nobody else who has experienced the world before because the world is just now coming into being, right? And um, he is just concerned that the world's getting darker and darker and that uh, he will be uh, vulnerable to the snake or whatever it is getting him. And I think that, that we can think of ourselves, right, as um, not so different from a dumb show. Maybe we didn't have that experience in the garden uh, and the you know the snake tripping us up. Right? But Adam, when we talk about Adam Harishon, the first human being, we're talking both about sort of the very specific story of this person, and we're also talking about all of us, right? He is the he is the 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 father of all humanity, and there's something about this experience which feels to me very. Um, uh, kind of very universal, right? This this is experience that any of us can uh, can relate to. And before we move on, I, I want to um, say one thing about Psalm one thirty nine, um, which is, um, and if you can scroll back to that Psalm again, Alex, it's on the top of page two, top of top of page two there, yeah. So um, one thing that's important to know about Psalm one thirty nine for our purposes, Psalm thirty nine is a beautiful psalm. It's actually my favorite psalm, so I strongly recommend <laughs> that you have a look at it at some point. Um, but it's a psalm um, about the creation of um, the human being, meaning actually the creation of the person in utero, right? How a human being is, parts are knit together, and it's also a psalm um, about being in God's presence um, and the kind of awfulness, by which I mean full of awe, right, um, of being in God's presence, and also the inability to flee from God's presence. Um, and because of that, right, because it's a psalm about how a human being is made, and because it's a psalm about a human being who may feel sometimes that it's too um, frightening, right, too kind of awe-inspiring to be in God's presence, might even want to flee from God's presence, but never can flee from God's presence. Um, our sages understood this psalm actually to be talking about the first human being, 
right? Um, that this first human being, right, was created. And each of us is created in some way like that first human being. And the first human being, of course, tries to flee from God's presence, right? After Adam and Eve sin, they hide amongst the trees of the garden, right? Seeking to flee from God's presence uh, because they're embarrassed, right? Um, because they're ashamed, because they know that they disobeyed God. So it's important to recognize um, as we go on that when the story is quoting the psalm is not just randomly uh, choosing a verse about darkness that happens to have the same verb, right, as the verb used in the verse in Genesis about the snake wounding the human being. Um, it's important to recognize that um, that it's actually the story is actually going to a psalm, which within the tradition is understood as a psalm about the experience of this first human being. And we'll get back to that again because we're going to see this psalm quoted again as we move on. So now let's go back, Alex, if you can go back to our story. Um, so here's uh, Adam and he's terrified. And it really is, I think terror is, is the best word to describe this. He's terrified um, that in this condition of darkness, uh, he will be wounded by this, um, he'll be you know attacked, he'll be wounded by the snake. Um, Alex, the first story, the top of the page. Thank you. Um, and so, and scroll down one line, <laughs> thank you. And um, and um, then what happens is the solstice comes and he starts to see the day lengthening. And that's the last line of your translation. When he saw that the day was le lengthening, he said, Kalendez, Kalendez, right? And this is, they're offering an etymology of the Roman festival of Kalends. And Kalendez um, either means like, anybody here know any Latin or? Even Greek, either of them will, will work for this purposes, right? But but let's say in Greek, cologne means good, right? And dio, God, or perhaps cologne and diem, diem day, right? So either God is good or the day is good, right? Either proclaiming God's goodness or celebrating the coming of the day, right? So we we have a, a story of Adams of being engulfed by the terror of the darkness. And as the solstice comes, noticing that uh, it, light comes again, and at that point, praising God or celebrating the day. So this is the story, and it's a sort of very bare bones, very simple, I think, very striking story um, that appears in the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Talmud of the land of Israel. Where we're going to spend most of our time on is the parallel story uh, in the Babylonian Talmud. What you should know, or you might know, is that generally speaking, um, stories in the Babylonian Talmud are significantly more complex um, than the earlier, generally earlier stories in um, the Talmud Yerushalmi. And um, so we're going to spend a little more time on that second story. Before we do that, any any thoughts, any comments, any questions about this little story that we just read? Okay. So let's move on. Um, so you can scroll down, Alex, to the second story on the page. And it's translation. Okay, great. Thank you. So, um, so this is uh, the parallel story. And again, remember, the stories are coming in relation to the Mishnah, which uh, talks about the festivals. And the Mishnah actually talks about Kalends and also Saturnalia. So here we have this text from the Babylonian Talmud, where Rav Hanan Barava wants to explain something about these holidays, Kalends and Saturnalia, again, Roman festivals. And he says, Kalends um, is a festival that falls eight days after the winter solstice. And Saturnalia is a festival that falls eight days before the solstice. And then he offers a mnemonic to remember which is which. Now, why does he offer a mnemonic? He offers a mnemonic because it's curious to him that the Mishnah first talks about Kalends, which comes eight days after the solstice, and then talks about Saturnalia, which comes eight days before the solstice, right? It's actually in reverse chronological order. It lists the later holiday before it lists the earlier holiday. So then, so he offers a mnemonic, a siman, and the mnemonic he offers is actually more complicated than the information that it's meant to remind you of, right? Like usually you have information that's hard to remember, and then you have a mnemonic that makes it easier. Actually, in this case, the mnemonic is more complicated than what he's trying to help you remember. And we'll talk about that in a second. So he offers as a mnemonic a verse. Achor bekedem tsartani. You have beset me behind and before. And notice where that verse is from. Anything look familiar there? Psalm 139. Psalm 139, which is the same psalm, right? 
that was quoted in the earlier version of the story that we saw, right? In darkness, right? In darkness, he, either darkness will attack me or in darkness, he will attack me, right? So we're, once again, we're going back to that sum. So Alex, if you scroll down again to the top of page two, um, you'll see that um, uh, right here in verse five, Achor v'kedem sartani, you have beset me behind and before and laid your hand upon me, right? And then the verse that we looked at before was verse 11, right? Achoshech yeshufeni, right? Uh, darkness uh, will envelop me or in darkness he will attack me. So there's something going on here, right? Once again, we're going back to, in order to, to offer a mnemonic for which holiday comes first, or which holiday is first and which is later, um, we're going back to Psalm 139. Now, I'll, I'll say very briefly how this mnemonic is supposed to help you remember that, and if it gets too complicated, just ignore what I'm about to say, and then I'll tell you when to pay attention again, okay? So the way it works is this, ahor v'kedem. In the verse, ahor behind is mentioned before kedem, which is before. Now, what you have to know is that in rabbinic imagination, like we imagine ourselves, right? When we say something's behind us, oh, that's, I'm so glad that test is behind me, right? What do we mean when we say that? Translate that into plain English. It's completed. It's right, it's in the past, it's over, it already happened, right? And before is something that in the future, right? We think of behind as what's in the past. In rabbinic imagination, it's the opposite, right? When they talk about something behind them, they're actually um, talking about something in the future. And when they talk about something in front of them, they're actually talking about something in the past. And that sounds very counterintuitive, but when you think about it, it's not so counterintuitive <laughs> because you can see what's in front of you, right? And you can see what's in the past. Well, you know what already happened, whereas what's in the future is behind you. You can't see that. Right? So if you look at the verse, ahor v'kedem, right? Ahor, meaning behind me, right? Behind is the thing that's going to come later, the thing that's going to come into the in the future, right? And kedem, the thing before me, is the thing that happened already in the past. So the point is that this verse, when understood this way, is putting what's in the future, um, right, putting the thing that comes later, right, before the thing that already happened, right, it's sort of chronologically backwards the way the rabbis are reading it, um, and that corresponds to the order of the holidays, right, Callan's eight days after the solstice and Saturnalia eight days before the solstice. If that was too confusing to do without a blackboard, ignore what I just said, and the point I really wanted to focus on is um, that the story, right? Like, why would somebody give a mnemonic that's more complicated to figure out than what it is that you have to remember? So my sense is that really bringing in the mnemonic is an excuse to call to mind Psalm 139. So I want to take a quick look at the psalm again before we continue on to read the Babylonian Talmud's version of this story. Okay. So um, if you take a look at the psalm here, this is not the whole psalm, it's just the first uh, 12 verses. Um, so I mentioned before, it's about the creation of the person. It's about this notion of the kind of awesome or even awfulness of standing in God's presence and sometimes the desire to flee from God, but you can't ever really flee from God. Wherever you flee, God is there. That's what the psalm is about. And um, I wanted to take a closer look at the verse that was quoted earlier about darkness. Because I think there's something super interesting about this verse, um, which I think is standing behind both versions of the story. So this is verse 11. The first part will already be familiar. Vomar. Now, again, don't look at the English translation because the English translation by, by necessity um, is choosing one way of reading the verse. And there's actually multiple ways of reading the verse, which is what I want to show you. So just look at the Hebrew, whether or not you understand Hebrew, that's fine. But try not to look at the English right now. Vomar, the person speaking in the psalm says, and I said, surely darkness shall envelop me or cover me or wound me or harm me. Right? I said, surely darkness will envelop me. Vi, now vi can mean either and or but, so hold that aside for a second. Laila or ba'adeni. Laila or ba'adeni. So Laila is night or is light. 
and Ba'adidi is for me. Now, it's tricky to translate the second half of that verse for the reason that um, it doesn't have a verb. So it says, night, light for me. So that could be read two different ways, right? It could be, it could mean, I said darkness is enveloping me, even light has become night for me. Even light has become night for me. And that would resonate with Adam's experience as the day is getting shorter and the night is getting longer, right? Darkness is enveloping me. Even what was before light is now night. So the two parts of the verse would be saying the same thing. But if you look at the next verse, um, darkness, speaking to God, darkness is not too dark for you, Belilah Kayom Yair, and night for you, God, shines like the day. And so this would be suggesting that on the one hand, Adam sees himself as being enveloped more and more and more by darkness, but ultimately God is in charge of the light. But a different way of reading verse 11 is this, that the first half is the same, right? I'm enveloped by the darkness, but Laila or Ba'adini can mean but, not and, but, but, but night has become light for me. And if you read it that way, then it's really can be read as marking that shift at the solstice that Adam experiences, right? I thought that I was being engulfed by darkness, but actually the solstice came and night became light. It started getting light again, right? So that I think is what's standing behind the use of that verse in the story that we just read. And what I'm suggesting is by the Babylonian Talmud bringing in a mention of the Psalm in this mnemonic as we're about to embark on the story, it's also asking us to kind of hold this Psalm and the experience of this Psalm in the back of our minds as we read the story that we're about to read. So let's move on to the story. So Alex, if you can go back to the second story on page one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have a, perfect. I have a, yes. I have a question about that. Please. Is there... Um, who's speaking? Hi, it's Eva. Oh, there you are. Yes, hi. Um, is there anything about the... Like, this is not an atypical structure for a psalm to, like, leave out the verb in the second clause... That's right. Is that, are there rules about that? Does it imply the verb? You're supposed to think it's the same verb as in the first clause or not necessarily? No, I, I think it certainly can't be the first one. I think it's like basically a, a sort of missing to be verb. But the point is that because in Hebrew, the word order can go either way. So is it night is light or is it light is night, right? It could be either one. Um, so there isn't really a rule about that, right? The parallel structure means that there's something in the second part that's parallel to the first part, but it doesn't have to be the same. It could be the opposite, right? First, it's getting dark, and it's now it's getting dark, or it could be it's getting dark, but now it's become light. Right? It can really, there really, I believe, is ambiguity built into that verse, um, and can, really can be read either way. And that, that's not so unusual that you can't always tell what's the subject and what's the object. Uh, in in a sort of in a poetic structure like that. Okay, okay. So let's go on to this story. So as I'm reading this story, just um, keep the uh, the first little story in mind and and jot down or just take note in your mind um, any differences you notice between the two stories. Then we'll talk about it. So I'll read through the whole story and then uh, we'll talk about it. Tanu Rabbanan. So we're bringing in. Um, Source, because the first human being, Adam, uh, saw the day that it was getting shorter and shorter. He said, He said, woe to me, perhaps uh, because I have sinned, the world is getting dark about me and is returning to Tohu vavohu, chaos and confusion. Tohu vavohu is Genesis, is the very first verses of Genesis, description of how the world was before the creation. And this is the death that was uh, sentenced upon me from the heavens. Amad v'yashav shmona yamim b'tanit uvitfila. 
So he up and soot and sat for eight days uh, in fasting and prayer. Once he saw the winter solstice and he saw that the day was getting longer and longer, he said, this is the way of the world. So he went and he made eight festival days. At a later time, he made these eight days and those eight days, meaning the days that he had sat in fasting and the days that he made a festival after the solstice, that he celebrated after the solstice, he made both of them, he established both of them uh, as festivals. He established them for the sake of heaven, but they, meaning the later Roman idolaters, the later Roman pagans, established them for the sake of idolatry. And before we, we talk about any, any things you noticed, is there anything unclear about this story? Anything just, just needs sort of comprehension clarification? Who's the they who established it for idolatry? Are we for idolatry? It, it's ta it's talking Romans? about the, the pagans, right? The Romans, right? The Talmud. That's what I thought. Written, okay. Right. right. So this is... Right. So this is talking about the Roman holidays of Calens and Saturnalia. Right. So they're understanding okay. this as the source of those holidays. And right? would it he translate in, yep. into modern day Christmas in that case? We'll talk about that in, in just a minute. <laughs> we will get to exactly what these holidays are in a minute. Thanks for asking. Okay. I have a question. All right. Sure. So you might have already covered this, so, but I'm not exactly sure if you have because I'm a little brain fried right now. But um in the case of the future is actually behind you, was it? Was there something going on in Adam's mind that said, I have to turn these into a celebration, a tradition every year from here on out? Is that what's kind of going on here? Right, so so it, it, it doesn't say exactly. It sounds like, right, the, I think the point is that the first, the first year, right, the first eight days are not festival days, right? They're days of fear and, and right. mourning, right? And then the second eight days are days of celebration. It doesn't say why at a later time he decided to establish them as festival days. We'll get back to that a little bit later. It doesn't say why, but I guess in looking back, and it's interesting, right, that in looking back, he sees not only the second set of eight days, but even the first set of eight days as a time for celebration. You could imagine right. that it wouldn't be that way, right? But in, there's something about, right, that, that, he, um, that he comes to see that even those first eight days in retrospect didn't need to be scary days because it's minhagoshalolam, right? This is the way of the world. He understands this is the kind of natural process, right? This must be just the way the world works. And so for some, you know, why it has to be celebration, I'm not quite sure, but he sees this as, you know, maybe it's all part of that same cycle. It gets dark, it gets light, nothing to be afraid of, and he establishes them both as festival days. Okay, well, are they we'll balanced, balanced for each other? The two, um, Callens and Saturnalia, are they to balance each other out? So according to the story, that's one possible interpretation. Right. right. And again, we'll see in a minute that this doesn't exactly describe the actual practice of Calus and Saturnalia. I'll, I'll explain that in a second, and then we'll talk about why the story kind of does it this way. Okay. Okay. So what differences did you notice between this story and the first little story that we that we read? And again, you have the, the whole text in the chat if you want to open it for yourself. Well, Saturnalia shows up in this one. The other one didn't, I, if I remember correctly, it didn't mention Saturnalia. That's and right. Also, it didn't mention yeah. they. The other story didn't mention they. Correct. Right. So first of all, this the only the other one only talks about Callens, and it only talks about what he did. It doesn't talk about how it later became something else. And this talks about both of these eight days, eight day holidays. Talks about what he establishes, you know, at future at a future time. Right. It never says in the first story that he established his holiday. It just says. That he said, Kalondia, right? Um, but in this other story, he establishes it at a later time to be a yearly, yearly festivals. And they, right, then kind of you know, change them over to be pagan holidays. All that's new in the Bavli that does not appear right, in the Talmud of the Land of Israel. Great. That's great. What else? Anything else that you noticed? There's a lot more detail. It's fleshed out more. There is a lot more detail, right? Can you mention one thing that you notice? Somebody else can jump in. I'm struggling <laughs> with the technology. Right. 
Oh, sorry. There's no reference to the snake either. Like Adam's blaming himself at this point. Mm -hmm. so this yeah. Story, yeah. What is he? What does he think is, is happening in this story? Right. In the first story, there's darkness, and he's afraid of the snake. What What does he think is actually happening in this story? He's actually blaming himself, though, because he says, well, perhaps I have sinned, and so this is the reason why this is happening. But right. also with reference to returning to chaos and confusion. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So number one, right, he makes explicit reference to his sin, right? I have sinned, right? He imagines not that the world is getting dark, but that the world is getting uncreated, right? Remember, the first act of creation is God saying, let there be light. Right, the very beginning of Genesis, right? The world is tohu vavohu. The world is chaos and confusion, right? And there's darkness. And God says, let there be light. So when he sees increasing darkness, what that says to him is, oh my goodness, that light, the first act of creation, that light is getting undone. And it's kind of, right? The whole world is rewinding, right? Rewind that video. And we're going to end up with a world that's fully dark and back into the state that it was in before God created the world. And why is that happening? It's happening because of me, right? He says that, oily, right? Perhaps because I sinned, the world is dark about me. And about me, right, can have both meanings that it has in English. About me, meaning all about me, or about me. Right? It's about me. And he's actually imagining the world as an extension of himself right? I sinned, and therefore, the world is going into a state of destruction, right? The world is being, right, dissolved into its pre-creation state. So this is kind of a, um, almost like a childish, um, you know, I don't know if it's actually true, but what they say about kids, right, that kids imagine, right, that they're part, that the world is a part of them, right? Again, I, I have no evidence that that's true or not, having had a bunch of kids, but let's say that's true. But this is like that, right? That he's imagining that the that that his sin has had an impact on the world, right? And not just that he's dying, right? This is the penalty of death that has been decreed upon me, but that if he's dying, it means the world is dying, right? The world is getting uncreated. And then, and that's very different from the first story where it's darkness and I'm afraid of the snake. I'm afraid of what happens in the dark. Here, darkness means an uncreation of the world and that's happening because of me, right? So there's this deep guilt in the second story. And something changes in his realization at the solstice, right? When he sees the solstice and he sees that the day starts getting longer, he says, this is the way of the world, right? Meaning, it's not just that, oh, like in the first story, wow, it's getting light, that's great. Praise the day or praise God, right? It's that he understands, he sort of comes to a completely different understanding of how the world works, right? If before he imagined that the world was an extension of himself, and if he is decreed to die because of his sin, that means the world is going to die. Now he understands that actually, right, the world just has its ways. And that has nothing to do with him. The world is going to keep on its cycles, right? Whatever he does what, and whatever he did. So it's a kind of a disenchantment of the world, right? It's kind of alienation from the world. He's him and he does what he does. And the world goes about its merry natural way, having nothing to do with him. Right? That's a very different um, move than you have in that earlier story, right? There's a real shift in his consciousness from the way he relates to the world. Um, any other, any other thoughts about the second story? And sorry, and, and actually that might be why in relation to what you were asking before, right? Why he then makes both of them, um, festive days, right? Because once you understand it being a cycle, right? Then the first part is no more scary than the second part, right? It's just, it's this moment. It's this moment when things switch and leading up to the switch is no more scary than leading out of switch, right? It's minhagosholam. This is the way of the world, right? It's a totally, total shift in his mindset and his understanding of, of the world. The world is the world and he's him. What I wanted to um, look at next is, it strikes me that um, many of the details of this text in the Babylonian Talmud um, are echoed in or echo um, the brief text from the Talmud that talks about Hanukkah which is why I wanted to do this text now. So this is, um, Alex, it's the second text on the second page. Um, so 
the, the Talmud doesn't talk a whole lot about Hanukkah, um, but um, I gave a couple of selections um, from the, the passage where the Talmud does talk about Hanukkah. I'm going to read the two little selections, and I think as I read them, you'll notice that there are certain echoes between the story we just read, right, the story in um, the Babylonian Talmud about Adam, and this text from the Babylonian Talmud about Hanukkah. So I'm going to read both passages, and again, either jot down or just keep in mind anything you notice that you think um, strikes you as echoing uh, the story about Adam. Tanu Rabbanan, mitzvah Hanukkah ner ish ubeito. Okay, so the first uh, part of the text here is not a story at all. It's actually a halachic text. It's a legal text. Uh, it talks about um, how do we light Hanukkah candles. And it says that the core mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles is a candle for each person and their household, right? One person in the household lights one candle. The hamahadrin, those who beautify the commandments, ner l'chal echad v'achad. Each person in the household lights a candle. The those who really, really beautify the commandments. Now we have a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, right? the two famous um, rabbinic schools that often uh, disagree with, with each other. So what is the most beautiful way to do the mitzvah? This is going to sound familiar because this is what we do. Um, one of these practices, Beit Shammai says, well, on the first day, we light eight candles. And from then on, we do fewer and fewer. We light fewer and fewer candles. And Beit Hillel says, on the first day, we light one candle. And from here on in, right, each day after that, we continue to increase how many candles we light. Our practice is, of course, Beit Hillel's practice, right? We light one candle on the first night, two on the second night, till we get to eight uh, on the eighth night, on the eighth. Okay, that's the first little text. I'm going to read the second little text. Second little text says, well, what is Hanukkah? And then it quotes a, a much earlier text. It says, as our rabbis taught, on the 25th day of Kislev, Yomei de Hanukkah, Tamanya Inun, are the days of Hanukkah, which are eight, on those days, you can't, um, you can't uh, do eulogies and you can't fast. Why do we have these days? Because when the Greeks, really referring to the, um, uh, the Seleucids, right? When the Greeks uh, entered uh, the sanctuary, entered the temple, they, um, they defiled all of the oil in the, uh, in the sanctuary, in the temple. And when the kingdom of the Hasmoneans uh, became uh, uh, prevailed uh, and defeated them, they checked, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that lay with the seal of the high priest, and there was only enough in it to light for one day. A miracle was done with it, and they lit from it for eight days. Another year, they established them, and they made them into festive days with days with praise and thanksgiving. Ah, sorry, I forgot one thing before we even talk about this text. I want to say one thing about Callens and Saturnalia that I forgot to say, which is important. Okay, so Alice, if you can scroll back uh, to the second text on the first page. Awesome. So one thing about Callens and Saturnalia. So our text, text we read a minute ago, right, said um, that uh, Callens fell eight days after the solstice and Saturnalia fell eight days before the solstice, um, which is a fact, right? That is a fact. <laughs> the Roman holiday of Callens is eight days after the solstice and Saturnalia eight days before. What you need to know is that in the earlier Roman calendar, right, the Julian calendar, the solstice was on December 25th. Sound familiar? That's why Christmas is on December 25th, because that was actually the solstice back then. Okay. Um, and eight days after December 25th is 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30, 31, 1. Right. So Callens is actually January 1st, right? And Saturnalia is eight days before December 25th. Okay. And that is a fact. That's when Callens and Saturnalia were. But what is not a fact. Which, what is actually a fabrication by the Talmud um, is the idea that both of these are eight-day holidays. In fact, neither of them was an eight-day holiday for the Romans. Okay, so what I want to point out is that in the Babylonian Talmud story about Adam Harishon, the first human being, right, um, they imagine him as establishing two eight-day holidays, right, which sort of corresponds to Calens and Saturnalia, but neither Calens nor Saturnalia were eight-day eight day holidays, okay? 
I forgot to mention that. That's important as we, Alex, if you could scroll back down to the second text on the second page. Um, that's important as we think about um, this text, right? because the first thing that I'll point out, right, and then you can point out other things that you might have noticed, is that in both texts, we're talking about an eight-day holiday. And moreover, um, the eight-day holiday of Hanukkah starts on what date? It says it right here. 25th of Kislev. The 25th of Kislev, right? So it's not the 25th of December, right? Which is the solstice that is referred to in the previous text, right? But it is the 25th of our month, right? So you have an eight-day holiday, right? That is in reference to the 25th of the month. Okay, so that right there might get you thinking that there's some relation between the stories that maybe that story about um, Adam was crafted in relation to eight-day holidays because it's trying to get you to think about Hanukkah. So what, what other things might you, uh, might you notice that sort of echo between the two stories? Well, between the Babylonian Talmud story and this, um, the second one that you have here um, mm -hmm. about, you start with, uh, well, considering the fact that Adam's thinking about chaos and confusion and destruction and everything, you start with destruction by defiling the Greeks, defiling all of the, um, the oil in the temple. And then after that, though, that's when you have the eight days of light returning and, you know, things getting better and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. Yeah, definitely. It's not even like it's kind of like it's darkness, but it's destruction. It right. Just destruction of the temple, right? Not of the world, but of the temple, which is kind of a mini world, right? Nice. What else? What else do people notice? Okay. Um, Shammai versus Hillel also. Like, do you take the days away or do you add the days? Yeah. And what does that remind you of? It reminds me of the, you know, Callens versus Saturnalia. Oh, nice. Okay, great. And an another thing it reminds me of is even the language that they use, right? Beit Shammai says, on the first day, you light eight, and then it gets less and less. Right. And Beit Hillel, right? On the first day, you light one, and then it gets more and more. Meaning, in the text, we have these two suggestions as to how we do the practice. And if you, you know, think back at that earlier text, right? He sees the day, mitma'et getting less and less. Then he sees the day getting longer and longer. And you have that same thing, not with the day here, right? But with the Hanukkah lights, right? Where the lights get less and less, you get less and less light, or you start with very little light and you get more and more light. Um, and what's interesting about that actually um, is that um, when you think about Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah actually marks the very, very darkest time of the year. Right? Uh, both in terms of the sun and actually in terms of the moon. Right? Hanukkah falls near, not necessarily on, but very near uh, the solstice, right? This time of year where it is the longest nights of the year, right? The least light in the year. But also Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, actually falls right in the middle of Hanukkah. So actually the little light that you get from the moon as Hanukkah is starting diminishes and goes down to nothing. So you can see no moon at all. And then right in the middle of Hanukkah, we begin to get that little sliver of the new moon. So both from a lunar and a solar perspective, Hanukkah itself incorporates both the absolute move toward the absolute darkest days of the year and, and nights of the year, and then beginning to see a little bit of a glimmer of new light um, from the moon. So both right on the solstice level and on the moon level, right, you have that, you know, decreasing light and increasing light built into Hanukkah. And in a way, it strikes me that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel's position, in practice, you got to choose one or the other. And of course, we go with Beit Hillel, uh, as, we, as we always do. Um, but on the textual level, both are sort of laid onto one another. Instead of having, like in the Adam story, eight days of decreasing light, followed by eight days of increasing light, you have sort of a model of decreasing light and a model of increasing light sort of overlaid on each other. You have eight days that incorporates both that decrease and that increase. As I said, both on the level of the celestial bodies and also on the level of the two suggestions of practice here. A um, couple more things that I noticed here are, um, and this is, is kind of a small point, but I think it's I think it really suggests an echo between the stories, um, is that both of them have the notion of establishing a holiday. Remember, we didn't see that in the 
Yerushalmi text, but in the Babylonian Talmud, we saw that the holiday is established. It's not just that he celebrated it, but that he established it. And also the language, Lishana Acheret, at a later time. Now, there's something happened that year. Things happen all the time. Right? But the notion that at a later time, somebody looks back at what happens and establishes uh, a holiday. Right? So that later time and establishing is used in both of the stories uh, in relation to the holidays that they're talking about. So I wanted to spend our last few minutes um, thinking uh, together um, about um, sort of what, what's, what's the point, right? Why, why would the Talmud choose to craft the story of Hanukkah and the story of Adam in relation to each other, right? What is it, what kind of imaginative space does it open up for us to have these two, um, these two texts in conversation uh, <coughs> with, each, with each other? Um, and I wanted to, to first kind of throw it open to you. I have a couple of thoughts to, to share as well, but does it give you any different thoughts about Hanukkah to see it in relation uh, to the story um, about Adam Harishon, the first human being? It, it may be that um, one is based out of completely, <clears throat> pardon me, pagan belief mm -hmm. and um, and mistaken pagan belief of, of Adam saying, oh, the world is about to fall apart, but oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, the days are getting longer. And the other, they had the story of Chanukah being the miracle of the oil. So like the Chanukah is L'Shem Shemayim and um, the pagan holiday, Roman holidays are the opposite. So I think it, it's there with the idea to keep Keep the Jews away from practicing pagan customs to show okay. them that it's mistaken. So, so we can sort of see how our winter holidays are similar, and yet there's there's a difference, right? One is L'shem Shemayim, right? One is dedicated to God, uh, and the other it becomes a, a pagan um, holiday. Um, okay, no worries, Ilana. Um, okay, and. Um, Great. Other other thoughts? Um, I see Juan had his hand raised. No, the only the only oh, comment. Oh, sorry, Juan. I, I didn't. I didn't see. Okay. You. Go ahead. The comment that I wanted to make was between yeah. the the Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, uh, as far as I understand it, uh, the uh, the festival of Hanukkah is the only festival that actually falls in the second part of the month. Uh, all the other festivals happen in the first part of the month, and therefore we have an ascending light, and we're we're getting up to the to the full moon, and this we're at the full moon, and then we're going backwards. So it makes a lot of sense that as it gets darker and darker, we need to add more and more light. Uh, so I think that uh, that from that astrological point of view, the the Hillel thinking is the correct one. <laughs> Great, right. So, so I, so I want to talk about that in a minute because it always puzzles me. Like, what is Beit Shammai thinking? I mean, can you imagine lighting eight candles on the first day and then going down to one? It's so depressing, you know. <laughs> so that, that, but I actually have a thought about that. I'll, I'll, I'll share it in a minute. So, I, I we're getting a little short on time, so I'll just. Um, right, that's true. Most of the holidays actually start at the full moon, right? Um, at the full moon, and this one starts as the as the moon is is beginning to disappear. Thanks, Lauren. Um, uh, but I hear you, right? We want to add more light. Why would we? Why would we go down, right? So let me just share a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, I think that um, connecting the story of Hanukkah to the story of um, the first human being um, is a way. On the one hand, um, as somebody just said, right? Maybe we want to distinguish uh, our practice from their practice. Right? And at the same time, there's also a, a sort of a universal element. I think many of us feel it this time of year, right? When we walk through the streets and, you know, there's the Christmas lights and maybe there's Hanukkah lights. And there's something about this time of year in, in so many cultures, right? Celebrating, uh, celebrating with light. And I think it's an opportunity to think of Hanukkah as on the one hand, quite distinct. And on the other hand, um, as marking um, also a kind of a universal human experience, right? This is something that the first human being, which means all human beings, uh, experience right, with this experience of, of you know going into the darkness and re-emerging uh, into the light. Um, um, another um, 
And another thought has to do with what I was uh, mentioning before about the Hanukkah, in fact, incorporates both the decreasing and the increasing light. Right? You go down to the very darkest time, come out to the beginnings of light, and Beit Shammai and Vaithel being about decreasing and increasing light. And you know, it's sort of interesting to me because in that in the story about Adam, you have there's an eight-day period where it's getting darker and an eight-day period when it's getting lighter. And all of a sudden, the story of Hanukkah kind of coalesces those times, that there's a single eight-day period where it's getting darker and lighter. And, and I wonder whether, in a way, that you know, invites us to consider the possibility that there's something more intertwined about light and darkness, um, and that even in darkness... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just yeah. about to ask yeah. about that, though, because of yeah. uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say that I agree with Shammai, though, but I think that um, there's a logic to it because mm -hmm. of the fact that maybe, you you know, like the point is you don't have to be so afraid of the dark aspect of it after all. Maybe you don't because God is always still with you, even if it is dark. I mean, we're talking about the Psalm 139 and it yeah. ends with God is still with you, even when it's dark and it's not scary for him, no matter what. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Right. That's actually not the end of the psalm. I cut it off. I apologize. <laughs> read the whole psalm. It's really beautiful. All right. I'll read the whole psalm. Right. right. So there's something about that, right? That darkness maybe incorporates light and light darkness. And it's not sort of this one and there's the other, right? But that somehow maybe they're intertwined in some way. Maybe you can find light in the darkness. Maybe darkness is not as terrifying. Maybe they hold each other in some way. Um, and I think in terms of some of our life experiences, we can resonate with that as well, right? That there are dark periods where it feels like it's only dark and that sometimes there's there's some light that emerges from that and, and sometimes vice versa. Um, then I wanted to suggest one other thing. So we saw that in the Bobbly story, there's this changing consciousness on the part of Adam, right? First, he imagines that the world is an extension of himself. And if he sinned, the world is going to fall apart just like he's going to die. And then, so something shifts at the at the solstice, and all of a sudden he realizes, no, right, whatever I do, it has no impact on the world, right? The world continues on its path, right? Nature, natural cycle continues, and it has nothing to do with me. And I think Hanukkah actually, um, if we sort of overlay that story with the story of Hanukkah, um, we do live in a world where, in a certain sense, whatever happens in the world has nothing to do with us. I mean, we can destroy the world. We're doing a pretty good job. But basically, right, it's not like if I sin, the world falls apart. Right? It, it, we live in an, an, a disenchanted world in that sense. And yet what Hanukkah says is that even though we've come to Adam's realization right, that the world is not really an extension of ourselves, that nevertheless, right, we can have an impact on the world. And that's really what Hanukkah lights are. Right? That on the one hand, lighting the Hanukkah candles are a way of like Pirsume Nisa, right? Of, of uh, publicizing the miracle, right? Saying just like they found this cruise of oil and were able to find light in the darkness, like we're publicizing that miracle by lighting the candles. Um, but another way to see it is um, that what we're saying is, Adam, you know, you're right, right? That the world is not an extension of yourself. But that doesn't mean we can have no impact on the world. And that Hanukkah is inviting us to, at this moment that we're being plunged into the darkest of times, Hanukkah is inviting us to add some light to that. And, and in that sense, I want to look at Beit Shammai in a different way. Right? That maybe what Beit Shammai is saying is, as you see that the world is getting plunged into that very, very, very dark place, right, the darkest possible time, that what you have to do is put out the biggest blast of light. And you're going to light up the world with your blast of light. And as the world starts to get lighter, actually, you don't need to put out as much light, right? And so that for Beit Shammai, maybe it's not about reflecting the miracle, but actually creating it, right? That you are actually trying to, to, to bring your light uh, into the world. And so at the beginning of the holiday, as, it's, as the light is completely disappearing, that's when you need to bring out um, the most light of all, in which case in Beit Shammai's position, in Beit, in Beit Shammai's opinion, um, we're being asked to notice kind of what, even in a world that we are alienated from, where the world, you know, does its own thing and we do our own thing, that nevertheless, right, we can still, the Hanukkah is, is inviting us to remember that we still can, can, you know, have this, this task and this privilege of trying to bring light into this very, very dark world. So um, we're really at time, so I don't want to keep people at all. Um, thank you, everybody. If anybody has any thoughts, more than welcome to um, email me or text me, but I'm afraid we are out of time. Thank you so much, and a happy Hanukkah to everybody. I'm really wishing 
people a lot of light in this season. Thank you so much, Dr. Steinmetz, for joining us today. And um, I just want to let everyone know about our next program uh, next week on Thursday, December 22nd. Uh, we'll be hearing from Rabbi Chaim Seidler-Feller on the God of Possibilities. So hope that you can all join us for that. Um, and as you said, th uh, happy Hanukkah to everyone. And thanks for joining us today. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.